0: Have your tickets ready. (laughs) Four o'clock show, please keep the line
1: moving. Have your tickets ready.
0: It's something you just can't really express in words. I just want
2: to like turn around several times during the movie and just look out over the crowd. And also that part like uh, right after a long time ago in The Galaxy Far, Far Away where there's that pause and then boom.
0: I remember Star Wars came out when I was in elementary school. And uh, one of the key things that I remember my friends talking about was this is a really cool creature. The point that would always be brought up would be that wouldn't it be great if we actually saw that move? So when I first heard that we were restoring and adding effects to, to the uh, Tatooine Dune sequence, and one of the things that we were going to be doing was um, making one of these do move, it was kind of like, Okay, sure. (laughs)
3: of Blast Points. This is Jason and this is Gabe. If you thought last week where we were talking about the 100-minute mark in Star Wars was the pinnacle of important topics to talk about in Star Wars podcasts, well, we've got a show for you. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, a really long time coming, but we are finally talking about the incredible Star Wars mini-documentary, Anatomy of a back. This is a really special one. It's kind of, it's one that people don't think about and talk about enough because it comes at a very special, exciting time in ILM and Lucasfilm history. It's kind of up there with the making of Star Wars or from Star Wars to Jedi. And even the beginning that comes a few years after this for Phantom Menace, because it's like the dawn of cg movie magic and really the beginning of the return of star wars that is still here to this day yeah, it really is an amazing just little snapshot in time of 1997 and what star wars fans were talking about thinking about what we were starving for information on and just The limits we would go for watching anything Star Wars. (laughs) I can't wait to talk about it, but there's something else we got to talk about. Snoketoberfest. Don't think we forgot. It's week two. Week number two in Snoketoberfest. How was your week one, everybody? How, was, how is Snooktoberfest going for you already? Did you have to take a break after week one? Snowtoberfest, you know, you got to do it responsibly. That's why we had to start out slow, to ease into it, make sure we're all taking breaths. But the first week is over, we should all be warmed up, and it's time to start the party. So like we said last week, each week in Snoketoberfest here, this year we're doing something a little bit different. And this week we're taking Snoketoberfest back to its roots. Some might say Exegol, some might say here on Earth, the roots of Oktoberfest. I don't know. Maybe a little bit of both. A little bit from common A, a little bit from common B, a little bit of mix and match. It's like if you're getting soft serve and they're like, if you want chocolate or vanilla, give me a little bit give me a twist of a little bit of both. You can have soft serve at a Snoketoberfest party, right? Yeah, just fill a big beer stein with soft serve, and (laughs) that's Snoketoberfest. That's what Snoke would get. It'd be like Dan Aykroyd in Nothing But Trouble, just, like, sucking it down, and people, like, gagging. (laughs) Okay, so that brings us to Snoketoberfest here, week two. I wonder, then, what it's going to be. Hmm...
2: Ich fand. Oh fand. meister oh, Kraft. It's Oktoberfest.
3: German Snoke. It's kind of like slow Snoke It makes him sound maybe more terrifying? I don't know. He's probably not as terrifying as slowed down, but still pretty spooky. You know what's interesting? I put Snoke in the the Google Translate on my phone, and the German word for Snoke, and this is a real thing, is Schnoken. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but it Google it translated it for me. Now I have to look and see if there's a, the scene of Leia if she says it were Schnoken.
2: <laughs> Nine. Snoke is schuld.
3: Apologies to all of our listeners in Germany. Sorry. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Snoketoberfest. Snoketoberfest.
4: thrilling commercial old ben kenobi had just rescued young luke skywalker from the savage tusken raiders it is now some time later as they discover the burned out remains of a jawa sandcrawler
0: fearing the worst luke races for home in a desperate attempt to save his aunt and uncle
4: what will he find stay tuned for the next commercial for star wars rated pg parental guidance suggested
3: anatomy of a dewback the underground legend of star wars documentaries i feel like anatomy of a dewback has been on every star wars release of everything <laughs> and when i went back getting ready for this episode i was kind of shocked that it was only on the blu-ray for like a home release and now it's on Disney Plus, at least in the U.S. If you go on the extras for A New Hope, Anatomy of a Dewback is on there. I felt like I was like, wait, are you sure it wasn't on the DVD and it wasn't on the VHS for the special editions or something? I could have sworn it was on more stuff. Well, that's what, Yeah, I don't remember the first time I saw this. Because watching it again on Disney Plus, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this but I don't remember what from (laughs) it's because I'm pretty sure I didn't watch it on the Blu-ray. So maybe I watched it when it came out, but I didn't have great. Did we even have internet in 97? Just barely. And that's kind of the wild thing with the history of anatomy of a dewback was it came out on starwars.com on August 11th, 1997 and that was just the first part. It was in five parts, and they released a chunk of it every single month. So it was Anatomy of a Dubek Year on StarWars.com, <laughs> which is so crazy. If you go back and watch it on Disney Plus, you can kind of see what the chunks were. And I'm like, man, how did we live back then? <laughs> With well, that's all you got for a month? And no, and I remember like struggling. To watch this. And it would take like a day to download. I mean, you hear people talk about how long it took for the Phantom Menace trailer to download. This is two years before that. (laughs) Well, yeah. And the Phantom Menace trailer is like, what, two minutes? And these were five minutes each? (laughs) So you had to wait a day, maybe even more, to get old men talking about cleaning up film stock. (laughs) And you liked it. And you loved it. It was a major moment for you. Finally, the one where they talk about washing the negatives. (laughs) Give them a bath. Come on. Get them wet. Just sitting there looking in front of your computer, watching a grainy QuickTime player. Man, Star Wars. (sighs) Those pixels over there, the original negative. Nobody talk to me. I'm watching some Star Wars stuff. (sighs) Yeah, because you were probably at the library at school, right? Is the only place that you would have internet in 97. Yeah, it was in support of the special editions. There was a feature on StarWars.com with sections called What Has Changed? Why the special edition? And it featured a breakdown of all the things that were added, which some people are still confused over. But in 97, they were trying to help people out. And Anatomy of a back was on there. And later, there was an 11-part documentary series hosted by Lucasfilm legend Lynn Hale which is called Lynn's Diaries. But the thing with Anatomy of a Back is it was the first made-for-the-internet documentary made by a studio. Yeah, I mean, that's a good chunk of what's on YouTube is just official little preview clip documentary interview things about movies and TV shows that are coming out. And Anatomy of a Back started it all right it would have been cool enough if it was just a general star wars thing but the fact that it was specifically about a cg dewback is really the best choice they could have made other than maybe cg jabba but at least jabba has lines where the Duback just moves around and walks one thing i love with anatomy dewback do- I mean, there's a lot of things i love but one thing That's like for real, like really made me like, huh, going back and watching it was how little talk the computer animated do back gets kind of like I barely even like anytime I watch a new hope, like on Disney plus or something, I don't even think about it that much or even that scene that much as being like, well, this was all new. Oh, look at those do backs. They didn't used to move. Do you know what, do you ever notice or think about the CG dobacks in A New Hope now? I mean, I feel like they have they ever been touched up over the years? Like, Jabba's constantly changed. A lot of things have changed a lot, but like I feel like the doback has kind of always been the same. Yeah, I think it still looks the same. Does it look perfect? No, but it's a do-back, and it's moving around and there's a stormtrooper on it and there's two of them now. It's still one of the highlights of watching the, the special edition. It's like, oh, here comes the dubacks. Be quiet. Dude, I got to hear that sweet back sound. Yeah. yeah. But kind of jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, part of this is the incredible Terrell Whitlatch design was because they needed a new design for the Duback for this scene in the special edition. And that is now kind of the official look of the Dubak, which is how it looked in the mandalorian and it's probably one of those things where if it wouldn't have been amped up in the special edition it probably would still be more of a obscure background creature and less of the kind of (laughs) top tier star wars creature right like there's there's tauntauns there's dubaiacs there's banthas even the ronto is kind of infamous at this point because it was in the special edition we haven't had enough rontos in my opinion <laughs> No. hopefully book a boba fett we're spending a lot of time on tatooine we better see some rontos yeah i hope so we need to we need to bring back the rontos it's like if jurassic park can come back then rontos should come back anatomy of a Back, though it it's a real special documentary it's kind of dry it's a lot of just people talking and showing you things on computers. But there's a real, real charm to that because it is so just 1997 digital effects. This is the most cutting edge stuff anyone has ever seen. And this is industrial light and magic leading the way. I mean, you think about it, it's, we're only just what, a few years after Jurassic Park. And it's like, oh my god, now this stuff is coming to Star Wars. And you think of like we were just saying with Tara Whitlatch. This was our first introduction to her. We had no idea what kind of secrets were on her desk there that we weren't being able to be shown at that point. They were knee deep in Phantom Menace stuff. They were figuring all this out. The do-back was the key to it all. Really, it was. (laughs) Right, we didn't realize that Anatomy of a Dubek was actually a super secret glimpse into the Phantom Menace and the future of Star Wars. I think if we thought hard, we probably could have figured it out. But it's you know, it's like when when new Star Wars stuff comes out, and you're like, oh my god, it was right in front of us the whole time, and we were too busy with the magic trick that the sleight of hand. Look over here! Don't think about the obvious thing, you know. And it's like, oh, Anatomy of a Dubek was trying to show us the way. And maybe it still is. Maybe that's why it's on Disney Plus now and why we think it's always been around, part of our lives. It's been trying to tell us that we need to pay more attention to it. Well, and unlike some of the other classic documentaries, it's like 25 minutes. Like, you can watch it every day while you're making your morning coffee. you can recreate the fall of 1997 and watch it in five-minute segments once a month. (laughs) Anatomy of a back it up for half a year almost. Yeah. You can do it twice a year. And then, you know, you got two months just to to relax before you start it all over again. So what do you say, Gabe, that we start going through talking about some of our favorite chunky bits in the wonderful Anatomy of a back. So another enjoyable thing with this documentary, too, is... And as we go through, you'll see a lot of the people who show up in this kind of are people you don't really see in the documentaries before this or after this. It's kind of like this was their moment to shine, and then they're back just kind of behind the scenes making movies. Yeah, this doesn't have, like, the John Knowles, the Rob Coleman's, the Ben Burt's. It's got George Lucas. People talk about Rick McCallum a lot. There's like a photo of him in it, I think, right? Yeah, he hasn't made his uh, primetime debut yet. But no, this documentary features a lot of lesser-known ILM superstars of 1997. So after it starts out and they, they do a wonderful thing of people in line for the 1997 special edition, and one guy passes the camera and gives the Vulcan salute, a real real funny guy. It starts out with uh, the extremely excited, right? David Tanaka.
0: And one of the things that we we're going to be doing was um, making one of these dubaks move. It was kind of like, okay, sure. Yeah, that would be great.
3: <laughs> he's very excited on the inside. And then we cut to who else? We got to cut to George Lucas, right? Because he's he's
1: talking about like the history of a do-back. In the original movie, in order to get do-backs and things into the movie, we built. Uh, a large rubber uh, mannequin, really, that we were able to move around from set to set. Uh, He had a big uh, stick in his head that somebody could sit alongside and move the head back and forth, and that was about as much movement as I could get out of it. Um, You know, it was a very crude thing. I tried, again, to get as as many different kinds of spaceships, robots, vehicles, animals, as I could possibly fit into the movie. Um, and I was always very frustrated about the fact that I couldn't get the dubacks to actually move or do anything. They were just basically big rubber statues.
3: I had some big ideas. They couldn't do a rubber thing with a stick. <laughs> he wanted it to run. He wanted it to climb. He wanted it to blink its eyes. He wanted it to feed it food. What probably happened, the whole thing, why he made the whole digital do to begin with, was the fact that he was sitting on it and there is the photo – Call up Tom Spina and ask him, it was that it was Celebration, the photo of George Lucas sitting on a dewback. That's probably where all this comes from. His, his only happy memory from making the original Star Wars was that 10 minutes he got to just chill out and sit on the dewback. I like to think that he was on there all day, just like, action, faster, more intense, just sitting on the dewback. He probably tried to ride it from one part of the set to the other, and they're like, Mr. Lucas, it doesn't actually move. Oh, geez, one day I'm going to make a computer that'll make it move. (laughs) So after all that excitement, then we cut to what? Tom Kennedy.
1: On a typical film, when ILM's working on shots, we may have anywhere from... 50 to sometimes 1200 shots in a film. It helps not to just give them numbers because it's a little hard to keep track that you're working on shot uh, 437. How is that different from shot 512? So instead, usually they're broken down by sequences. So in this, in Star Wars, we took the Tatooine Dune sequence and the first three shots that came in were TD-1 for Tatooine Dune, TD-1, TD-2, and TD-3.
3: I love this because you feel like you're getting some of that insider info. Well, it's the kind of information that if you're really into this stuff, you're like, this is fascinating. <laughs> and if you're not into this, you're just like, what's he saying? Numbers? Now he's saying letters. I just want to see a If It's just like if you're watching it with someone who's just mildly interested and in they'd be like, "Would well, this thing is 26 minutes long. You're really going to sit here and watch this whole thing? <laughs> you know, this is from 1997, right? This this is kind of old. They had to redo the transitions and TD3 was missing. So enter Tom Christopher. Yes, who is introduced as TM Christopher, which I'm convinced the TM stands for the mustache. <laughs> He's the transition from the the late 70s, 80s into the 90s. They had to have the mustache man. He is really maybe the biggest superstar in this because in addition to being an editor, uh, on these new scenes for the special edition, he was also the editor of the, the droids. And uh, I think Ewoks cartoon episodes that were edited down to like a movie that they put out on VHS and DVD. So that was also TM, the mustache Christopher. Yeah. The Ben Burt cut of the droids episodes where he made them into, a movie and changed a bunch of stuff around. Go, if you go back and listen to our history of the Droids cartoon where we go all into it. Yeah, he was the person Ben Burt was calling upon to work out this insanity. Those Droids Ben Burt version movies were came out in what 96? Yeah, I think it was 96. So they were probably being worked on maybe at the same time they were filming this documentary. Magical time to be alive. Like, what'd you do today? I was talking to a camera crew about making digital do-backs, and then I had to go check in with Ben Burton, and talk about re-editing some Manjuba scenes. Well, and also, you know, we can't forget, too, I believe he also was an audio engineer on Return of the Jedi, so he goes way back with the, uh, the Star wars So speaking of, of going way back with the Star wars then we've got Tim Fox and he's digging around in a bunch of cardboard boxes in the archives, looking for TD3, the mysterious one bit of film they need for the special edition. Here we are in the Lucasfilm archives, which
0: houses all the material shot for every Lucasfilm production, beginning with THX 1138. This is where the search for the trooper in the desert sequence began, starting with the Star Wars workprint print material, which Tom Christopher, the editor, had already removed into his cutting room. There he was able to identify which elements he thought would be useful in remaking the effect, and it was my job after that
1: to start a search for the negative.
3: I'll never get tired of people digging through cardboard boxes in the archive. And speaking of on Disney+, Plus, there is like a feature on Disney+, Plus on the extras for A New Hope, where it's the late, great J.W. Rinsler. It's the bloopers one where they talk about how they found the uh, the original bloopers from from a new hope. It's kind of fascinating to watch along with this because you can kind of see that like the film archives part of the archives it's not cardboard boxes anymore. It looks like it's a little bit better organized now. There's something exciting about watching someone wander through aisles of boxes that are you they open the boxes and there's Film canisters, and in the film canister, there's smaller boxes with other boxes. It's just there's so many layers to this part of the show. When then they cut back to Lucas and he's like, I save everything, I'm a pack rat.
1: (laughs) I started out as an editor, so to me, you know, saving the film, the film is what the whole process is about. And uh, so I've saved all my films, I've saved all the negative, I've saved everything, Uh, partly because I'm a pack rat and partly because as an editor, I just don't want to throw those things out because I never know when I might want to go back and. Go back into it again.
3: Which good thing he is. We're also lucky that the it's all there. Yes. Yeah, so then we get into the whole cleaning the film part with the uh, old men talking about cleaning film. Got to wash it. That film was dirty. It was nasty. Got to scrub it. All well, the splices were backed up with tape, and it was put
1: through a processing machine again to loosen the emulsion and get as much of the embedded dirt and material that had been in there for twenty years off the negative
3: so it would look a lot cleaner you know though when i was watching this part i was like man they do not make documentaries like this anymore they do not go into this level of detail which is old men talking about washing film no it's true then and that's again why this is so fascinating as like a star wars time capsule and just like making of in general because it's like It's kind of like the the 70s and 80s stuff you would get, but now there's computers in every shot because they're not looking at models or people painting things. They still have, yeah, the the oldest old men they can find who just are, yeah, literally talking about washing negatives. So then to to kind of pick up the pace a little bit, they're talking about building a 3D space. And enter Alex Sidon. It's kind of like when you're watching A New Hope and you're, like, really into the movie and you think this is amazing. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, Luke Skywalker shows up and you're like, oh, he's the main character. It's kind of like that with Anatomy of a where <laughs> you keep watching it and they get to the cantina and Harrison Ford walks in. And you're like, oh, who's this now? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's even, yeah, even more apt that, yeah, he's the... The Han Solo of Anatomy of a Dewback. Not only is he the superstar of this documentary, he is probably one of the most fascinating people I have ever seen in anything ever. Real life documentaries, TV, anything.
2: He's the Poochie of ILM. Because he's to the extreme. (laughs) Design work is, of course, a critical part of the process. And one of the things that was really important with the Dubacks was getting some really good drawings, which we had Terrell Whitlatch, one of our art directors, do. And her work really helped us um, hone in on uh, the Duback that we wanted to build. To talk about him, you've got to describe the visuals of him because you do –
3: This is an audio thing we're doing here with the podcast, but he's in like a screening room and he's got his feet up. And it looks like he bought brand new shoes for the filming of this Dubek documentary. And it looks like he's got sunglasses on, but around like a rope around his neck. So at any time, he can just hop on a skateboard and get to the extreme and ride out of there. Yeah, he seems very caffeinated maybe it was coffee maybe it was mountain dew maybe it was mountain dew mixed with coffee <laughs> but really the the best thing is he's appears to be one of those guys who they can back it up like they come across as as this like over the top person but they're for real and if you look at his career since then he was at ILM for 9 years he was at Pixar for 12 years he was at Tippett Studios. Like, this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, he's worked on some absolutely amazing stuff. And I want to know a lot more about him. Yeah, because before the special editions, he worked on Jurassic Park. He worked on Meteor Man, the Flintstones, Star, Star Trek Generations. Well, there's going to be a lot more Alex Sedon coming up. But right after we're introduced to Alex Seaton, then, yeah, but then we have our First, look at a very young Terrell Whitlatch showing off her drawings of Dubak babies.
4: I had a really, really small still from a Star Wars book of the head of a Dubak, and I thought about, well, what is a Duback like? You know, I started thinking about their personality, you know, obviously how large they are, how heavy are they. That um, was pretty important. This year, bulk of the creature. And how fast could it move? Then I thought, well, do they have, how many babies does it have? You know, How long do they live? All kinds of thoughts like that. And um, I figured that it may have some um, characteristics like a camel, like a dromedary. And so I added some features like these calluses on the chest and on the elbows. I emphasized the hump up here on its neck a little bit because perhaps it stores its fat because it has to go long periods of time without eating. It just has a thick rhinoceros-like skin, and the feet have spongy pads like a camel's feet.
3: Anytime Tara Whitletch ever comes up, I have to say, if you don't have it, you need to buy the Wildlife of Star Wars book. It is amazing. It is incredible. It is all her creature drawings, and it's one of the best Star Wars books you can buy. Even the art of uh, the Phantom Menace book. It's a Doug Chang Tara Whitlatch, Tour de Force in there. It's absolutely incredible stuff, and she is a Star Wars legend. Yeah. Well. Oh, and the uh, the prequels, Tashin book. Yes. Oh my God. Mind blowing. Absolutely mind yeah. blowing. Yeah. So then we get into the conversation of this crazy new thing called Previs on the computer. It's a whole new way of doing it. It's I don't know if it's going to stick around. It seems a little crazy to me. Our buddy Alex is kind of breaking it down. You know you can trust
2: him, and you know he's going to explain it really clearly. Pre-visualization is key to visual effects because you're dealing with a situation where a very important part of your shot doesn't exist when you shoot it. So you have to do a lot of pre-planning. You have to understand where things are going to be in, you know, spatially and make a lot of the creative decisions that normally in live action photography you would make on the set and play around with and make them up front because you won't be able to see what you're getting on the set. And if you don't think about that ahead of time, you can paint yourself into a big corner.
3: It was wild watching this footage of this previs for the the Tatooine desert, TD1, TD2, TD3, as as the the insiders call it. And it made me think of some of the Disney gallery stuff we saw for Mando season two, especially where at times it was like, wait, this is previs. It looks just like exactly like the final shot. Yeah. Almost more than even how good the final films look. This, the quality of previs is just, it's ridiculous how good it is now. And going back to this, when they were just starting to, to mix in, the the 3d rendered previs with the traditional 2d storyboards and how you know with the prequels then there was the whole animatics department that was doing this kind of stuff to the point where i i feel like i think in attack of the clones right they were just like coming up with cool shots that they would just edit into the movie and then those would end up being sent to ilm to become real shots like during the droid battle And then now, yeah, like you said with Mando, there's (laughs) there's times like you don't know if that's supposed to be the real shot or not. That's what we're saying. Anatomy of a dubek is the key to it all. They're talking about like digital creatures, but also it's like they're breaking the ground on previs here, and it's insane. We weren't absorbing this in August '97. It was flying right over our heads. We were just like, so what you're saying is there's going to be (laughs) dubeks. Because I love do Yeah, because I mean, after this little bit, we're introduced to uh, another new star in this little film, David Dozeretz, who went on to do a lot of animatic previs stuff for ILM. He was the previs effects supervisor on Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and kind of just kept doing this thing of using the computers to figure out what this movie's going to look like before they make the movie.
1: The first thing that we had to do was build geometry that was going to represent certain parts of the scene. For example, the dewback that the artist Terrell Whitlack designed. Uh, We can see in this three-dimensional modeling program that uh, we have front, top, and side views and a camera view of what this creature is going to look like. This will allow us to this will allow the computer to calculate what each surface of this creature is going to look like from different camera angles.
3: You have a really in-depth conversation with him, uh, Brandon on Talking Bay 94 talked to him last year. It was a really good episode. I just listened to it again recently where he goes really in-depth on a lot of the work he did, especially on the pod race in Phantom Menace. And yeah, I mean, think of that. Think of all that stuff from the pod race. All getting its roots here with TD1, TD2, and TD3. And the do back.
1: When you're directing a movie and you have a, a cowboy on a horse and you say, okay, a little bit to the left, now, okay, now run forward. And you look at it through the camera and you say, okay, that's great, that's a rehearsal. Um, uh, this time, you know, come a little bit closer to the fa- camera, start a little back, move to the left, and uh, about halfway through, sort of rein your horse off a little bit. That's the normal way you direct. And you keep doing takes and takes until you sort of get it the way you want it to be. Uh, with, with computer technology and doing scenes that are basically done on a computer, you need to be able to have that same feedback in the process of creating the shot and framing the shot and, and deciding whether it's going too fast, too slow, too close to the camera, too far away. Um, and that's what this whole low-res pre-visualization aspect of it is. It's a way for the director to actually see the shot Nail down the shot and say, okay, that's the way I want it.
3: See, I think I go back to my original description of Alex as being the Luke Skywalker of this. Because really, now the Harrison Ford, the Han Solo appears. And Ted Gagliano was briefly introduced earlier, uh, who was the pre-production executive at 20th Century Fox. Tells a story about how he's always had a problem with Star Wars because he's always been jealous of those darn Scylla brothers that he grew up with. I told
0: Rick, I guess at one point, the story of how I was always really jealous of uh, my two best friends in high school who were friends with Ben Burt, the Scylla brothers. And I was always a step behind John Scylla who was a valedictorian of our class and Ben recorded their voices. So for 20 years, it really bugged me that both of these guys got to be in Star Wars, and here I was working on it. So I told Rick about them being in it, and he said, and he, and he called me up a few weeks later and said, "Well, what are your measurements?" And I, I said, "Well, six feet." And I, I really didn't know what he was. He said, what's your weight?" And I said, "You know, 160." He said, well, "That's that's." I said, you know, I started wondering what what does he ask me. And he said, "Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Perfect." And he goes, "Well." Are you, can you just reserve August 10th and 11th on your calendar? Are you going to be anywhere? We might just need a little, uh, an extra stormtrooper. I said, you know, my eyes, you know, I was on the phone with him, my eyes lit up, and got stormtrooper. It's like, I said, yeah, yeah, you know, that those Scylla brothers, I think it's time that you put to rest this, this grudge that you've been carrying.
3: Listen, I'm jealous of the Scylla brothers because they were friends with Ben Burt. I feel for Tom Gagliano. Yeah, that would be rough. I could relate. That would be rough. But Ted Gagliano, <laughs> he got to talk to Rick McCallum on the phone. So not only did he get to dress up as a stormtrooper and be in a new hope, but it's like yeah, you were friends with Ben Bur and your voices in the rebel hangar, sure. But did you talk to Rick McCallum on the phone? Yeah, and after Ted's story, that kind of uh, transitions into a, a little a little uh, visit to the archives. They got to show some something that people are touching and not just computer stuff and we see some of the stormtrooper costumes but then we get into some really good stuff where we get some stories about them in the desert filming the plate from our good buddy alex about them riding in dune buggies and hanging out with the the marines or whoever are are in the the stormtrooper costumes
2: it was a brutal shoot one of the toughest that I've been on. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun because it was amazingly beautiful, and we got to ride around in dune buggies, and you know, charge through the desert, and we had uh, uh, U.S. Marines walking around in stormtrooper costumes in this blistering 120 degree heat. So it was it was a very exciting experience to be out there. Um, definitely felt like you were out. On Tatooine, in the middle of nowhere.
3: It was totally extreme. It was to the max, dude. Got some Taco Bell, drinking some Dews, riding in the Dune buggies. I showed up at my Baja Blast, and I was like, I gotta recycle this cup when I'm done, dude. So then... While you're still recovering from that Then we got like some footage of a video conference Where they're looking at some very crude Early Dubeck footage And you hear George Lucas On the video conference and it's solid gold
2: This is a very very crude dubek. Uh huh Yeah it's a little too long striding For uh Right What we were thinking but Alright well good in
1: there. But- and we like this, the way the stormtrooper kind of waddles gets thrown back and forth. Yeah, no, I like that, too. Yeah. The stormtroopers, you know, in the pictures have these big, long poles. Right.
3: Yeah. Which one might assume are used to zap the thing on the head or something. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought they were, I thought they had a stick. Just talking about doobacks. They need to hold the big stick. <laughs> don't, don't forget the stick. I really need that stick. Then what do you do after that? Then you got to cut back to Alex. Here we go with the pantyhose filter.
2: One of the things that was important to the original photography is that it had a very soft look, had that uh, sort of gauzy, kind of rich, almost dreamy quality, pantyhose over the lens, which gives you those very distinctive four-cornered flares. If you look at the shots before they're treated with our our pantyhose filter you'll find that they're very crystal sharp and it would be very jarring to see that kind of stuff cut in.
3: Alex could read the most boring thing in the world and make it sound totally extreme and to the max. And I think you know this is a real thing this is this is actual you know filmmaking stuff but Alex has a has a unique way of describing all of this stuff. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's the secret to his career is just people just wanted to hear him. Hey, what do we have in the vending machine over there? Oh, man, we got Coca-Cola. Hey, Alex, are there any Fritos? There's normal and chili cheese. And he puts on his sunglasses, rides off. <laughs> <laughs> so after we get through with the, the, the pantyhose filter incident, and we're still recovering from that, we start getting into, like they were talking about, with the Star Wars.com article, why the special editions? Why is it coming back out? Why did George Lucas make changes? And Lucas kind of explains some of the reasoning behind
1: it. I hope the sequence now establishes that there are more stormtroopers on the planet. there's not just two or three stormtroopers. It's actually a lot of them. The danger is greater and uh, they are a more formidable element in the movie than they were before.
3: And that's all well and good hearing it from George Lucas. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, They make the point that like in Real 1, which I like that they call it Real 1, not in the beginning of the movie, that Darth Vader does said, dispatch a garrison down to Tatooine to find the droids. Okay. It makes more sense that there would be more stormtroopers. But then we cut to Alex's interpretation of that same thing. Because yeah, we heard from George Lucas, but what does Alex think?
2: The important thing about the Tatooine Dune sequence was that we were trying to make a story point in that the stormtroopers weren't a bunch of lamos that just spent five minutes looking for the droids and didn't find them. They actually got out there and conducted a full scale search of the planet. And to make it a little, you know, increase the dramatic tension and the stakes and give more of a sense of a wider scope to the story that's being told.
3: No one wants to think the stormtroopers are a bunch of lamos. They had to have known when they were editing this. We've got to put Alex. The stormtroopers are not lamos. I know lots of lamos. It's good this only exists digitally because if there was a a physical copy, it could only be printed in solid gold, and it would be much too heavy to put a to keep on your shelf. See, this made me think though. Just a couple years after this, we had the Star Wars word Schlamo. Did Schleimo come from Lamo? Was Alex at like a Lucasfilm party and he was having some of the some of the crazy punch and the punch bowl, started slurring his words, and he called somebody a Schleimo and George Lucas was like, Well I gotta write that one down. That's some good that's some good <laughs> stuff. Putting that in my notes right now. You know, we we're talking a lot about Alex Sidon. We're joking a lot. But I think in 1997 we were all excited watching this, <laughs> high fiving our 12 inch computer monitor. <laughs> yeah, stormtroopers are lamos. They're rad. Biker scouts, totally cool, dude. So, yeah. So the, at the end, we have Lucas summing it all up. He wanted to fix stuff. He wanted to his quote is he wanted to pull some of the thorns out of his side, so dramatic and one of those thorns, yes, was the
1: dewback. When we decided that we would restore the films and um, uh, I realized that I had an opportunity to fix a lot of the problems that I'd had when I first finished the film I looked at the film and began to pull all the old thorns out of my side, one of which was the dewbacks and the fact that the dewbacks couldn't walk and I always wanted them to, uh, to have movement and walk around and be part of the, uh, the population of the film.
3: He must have been laying in bed at night thinking about all the Star Wars thorns in him. And one of them was, if only the dewbacks could have walked. And that is why we love you, George Lucas, because that's the kind of stuff that kept you up at night. Why aren't there more dewbacks and why aren't they walking? Yeah, I'm so glad that this exists on Disney+. Plus. Absolutely incredible that you can, at any time, at least in the United States where a lot of the, this stuff is, you can go and watch this total time capsule of 1997 to the extreme at just all the way 1990, 1997 Star Wars. And I'm glad, too, that the legacy of Anatomy of a Do-Back is still strong. Just last year, superstar Kelly Knox did a piece on StarWars.com where she listed 10 essential Star Wars documentaries that are on Disney+. Plus. In spot number two, right behind Empire of Dreams, was Anatomy of a Do-Back. Number two! It's that good. It really is way ahead of from puppets to pixels it's something special and yeah if you've watched it in the past watch it again if you've never watched it it's only 25 minutes it's totally worth your time and and maybe the best thing is at the very end they show the full clip and they have the audio from an audience watching the special edition and if you crank up your tv the very end you can hear somebody go
2: "Woo!" (laughs)
3: Brought me back. It really brought me back. <laughs> mm-hmm. I probably was that person at one point in time. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. backs. Watch out! Yeah. At least the first eight times through it, you were still hooting and hollering at the backs. Did my seat just catch on fire? Because I'm hot. I'm hot! Hot, hot, hot.
4: Star Wars Collection. It's the Patrol Dubak action figure sold separately. Let's find the droids, Dubak. Hide, R2. You can imagine you're a stormtrooper on the Patrol Dubak, searching for R2-D2 and C-3PO. Look both ways, Dubak! By moving his tail, you can make Dubak's head turn left and right. You can move his legs, too. He found us. Good work, Dubak. The new Star Wars Patrol Dubak from the Star Wars Collection. Action figures each sold separately by Kenner. NASA Marshall, I play Harrison Doola on Star Wars Rebels and you're listening to Blast Points with Jason and Gabe. May the Force be with you always.
2: And these Blast Points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise.
3: Folks, you know the deal with Apple podcast reviews. When you get done listening to this, go over there if you want, write a little something nice. Not only does it help the show in mysterious ways, helps more people find Blast Points, but we love those reviews so much, it brings warm feelings to our hearts. And after that, check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, and make sure you're following us on social media, Instagram. Twitter and Facebook and if you're on Facebook make sure you're a member of our super chill group and we want to support the show in a different way we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon tons and tons of bonus stuff Clone Wars Bad Batch Mandalorian Review episodes, commentaries, so much stuff on there, so much stuff coming on there in the very near future. And if you are a member of the Blast Points Army on Patreon, then we thank you so, so very, very much. But that wraps up number 286, Anatomy of Anatomy of a Back. I don't know. I think moving forward, I want to live life more like Alex Seiden. I think so. I think we really need to embrace the, uh, live life to the extreme because it obviously worked out really well for him I don't want to be a lame-o do <laughs> no. you don't want to be lying on your deathbed staring up at the ceiling just thinking man I'm such a lame so on that note folks you're going to want to tune in next week it's going to be a really uh, special episode really cool one but you'll have to wait for that that's next week thank you all for listening so much thank you everybody bye bye may the force be with you
4: Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
3: Do.
2: The stormtroopers weren't a bunch of lamos.
1: I May mean, the force be with all of you.